You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Capitalism, the only moral social system, by Gregory Salmieri. So the title of my talk is Capitalism is the only moral social system. That comes from this sentence, which is a uh, capitalism is the only moral social system, which is a slight paraphrase of... Uh, some things Ayn Rand said. Uh, I'm going to, what I'm going to be doing in this talk is, well, delving into a little what this means. It's quite a big claim. Uh, it would take a long time to say just what morality is and to prove that this is true. But I'm going to try to adumbrate the claim today by doing a few things. First, I'm going to talk about what the three terms in the claim mean. What does she mean by capitalism? Is capitalism a particular historical system that we're using now that started at a particular time in a particular place? Is it an ideal, as some of her quotes suggest, that has never been tried? Something in between? How are we to understand what capitalism is? What is a social system, if capitalism is the only moral one? What do we mean by a social system? And what is moral anyway? So those are the three topics I'm going to talk about. I'm going to weave in and out between them to try to give a sense of what it means to say that capitalism is the only moral social system and why one might think this, why I think it. I want to start with moral, and there's a key to what's meant by this just in the quote already, geared to the life of a rational being. There are different theories of morality, but the objectivist theory, Rand's theory, and the theory that I'm going to be assuming here, is that the moral is what is geared to the life of a rational animal. There is a morality of reason, a morality proper to man, and man's life is its standard of value. What this means, this last quote, and how it relates to Aristotle is actually going to be my subject tomorrow when we're talking at the Lyceum. Very exciting that we're getting to go there. So I'm not going to say much more about it today, except to bring out a certain idea in it. The idea that there's a type of life that's the human way of life, it's based around rationality, which is our kind of core tool of survival. And that we're judging something morally in saying that it fits with or is consistent with this human way of life or not. So to give a sense of what that means and of what it could mean that we've, you know, some distance into our life as a species, come across the only moral social system, I want to think about ways of life and the creature that lives a certain way by means of a certain faculty other than human beings. And so I've chose birds. Birds fly, not all of them, but most species of birds fly. But it's not just that they fly. Birds have a flying way of life. They live in a way that involves flight tied deeply to it. They have a kind of life that's organized around flight. Different kinds of life for different kinds of birds. Here I've picked an eagle. Think about the way flight factors in an eagle's life. It's not just something it does from time to time, but it finds its food by soaring through the sky and, you know, seeing it and pouncing down on the thing that it wants to eat. Um, it, I think they might even mate while in the sky, but whether they mate airborne or not, they fly to someplace high to lay their eggs where they'll be protected and they have to fly to get down from it and so forth. Think about all the ways in which flight is central to the life of an eagle. And now imagine a population of eagles that didn't know how to fly, that never learned how to fly. A little bit fanciful, but 
Suppose there was a clutch of eagle eggs, for example, brought by a naturalist to a remote island where there were no other birds. The eggs hatched there. Somebody sought to them, gave them food, helped them through their immature phase, but no one ever fledged them. They were never taught to fly. And these eagles went on to reproduce, and there are more and more eagles on this island, and they don't fly. They're just physiologically like any other eagles. They have the same wings, the same musculature, and in a pinch, they'll fly. If you startle them, if they're afraid, they'll start flapping their arms, and they'll get a little airborne, and they'll get away. If they really, really want something, they'll get all excited, and maybe they'll end up up in the air a little bit and moving towards it. So they fly occasionally. Think of the way like Harry Potter would speak in um, that language snakes could understand once in a while when he got scared. But he didn't know how to do it. It wasn't a skill he had. And think of a population of eagles like this. They walk where they're going on the ground. They hunt by pecking for worms. Occasionally, if they really want one, they'll hop and fly to it, but it's not what they do. They lay their eggs on the ground, in nests on the ground. And this is how these birds live generation after generation, eking by meagerly. You might think it's implausible that a species could do this. But here's a timeline of human history. 200,000 years ago are the first things that, you know, we dig up their skeletons and we look at them and I can't tell that it's a skeleton from 200,000 years ago or someone who died yesterday. For all we can tell about these people, they're exactly the same as us, physiologically. But it's not until 150,000 years later that we find anything in the archaeological record that shows people acting like people do now. People acting in ways that indicate that they have abstract ideas, ceremonies for burying their dead, some kind of art. It seems like human beings went 150 years before they learned to, 1,000 years, sorry, before they learned to think in abstract terms. Maybe there was some brain mutation or whatever that caused it, I think the evidence is actually against that, just with the speed of how it spread, that people were always able to do this, but no one thought to until someone did, and then it spread. But even if there was a physiological cause of that that made it happen then, there certainly wasn't a physiological cause of us learning to write and read. And that wasn't until 3200 BC, like tens of thousands of years later. If you think of all of the history that our species existed as the bottom line, up until here, is when people started speaking and thinking abstractly and, you know, doing the things that we think of even the most, we might think of as backwards people doing. And it's all the way until here, until they started writing, and everything since then is like a rounding error in human history. Some people think the natural human way to live is this way. Somehow that's what we're evolved for. That seems bizarre. Human beings don't live that way. They don't live well that way. These people seem a lot more like the eagles who haven't realized they could fly yet. And let's go back to the eagles. Suppose that some intrepid bird in that population maybe flew a little bit by accident, then thought, this is awesome, I could put this to more uses, started flying, built his nest up high, other birds observed him and taught him. What would you expect to observe about the eagle population? I think you might expect to see something like this. This is a chart of eagle life expectancy, starting from 
all that period we talked about to when that intrepid eagle got the idea to fly. This is a chart of what happened to eagle life expectancy on that island when eagles learned how to live the eagle life. In fact, it's a chart of human life expectancy when human beings learned how to live a human life. It's a chart of life expectancy in the United Kingdom going back uh, to the 1500s all the way to today. And we don't have, we, I have the United Kingdom here because we have data on life expectancy then better than other places. We don't have it much before here, but it's pretty much stable. And what evidence we have of the anthropological record is that human life expectancy was pretty much the same 30 to 40 years for most of that 200,000 years. There were some changes in it, I'm sure, at different times, but not huge ones. Nothing like what we see around here. Starting in the middle of the 1800s, a line that had been flat for hundreds of years, in fact, for hundreds of thousands of years, how long human beings on average lived, started going up, almost going vertical. Life expectancy doubled. Started in England, but it wasn't just England. If we look at here's world, not at the same pace, but also the same shape. Here's particular other countries and areas of the world. It's not just life expectancy. A lot of the life expectancy is from infant mortality plummeting, but even at higher ages, you have a higher life expectancy. And of course, infant mortality plummeting is fantastic. A lot of the ways the eagles would have improved is, you know, few of their eggs would have gotten eaten. You see, the same chart was GDP per capita. It's a crude measure of how much we have, but not so crude that there's not something damn impressive happening in charts like this. And here, we can go back further if we just focus on England where there's better data. And after hundreds of years, in fact, after hundreds of thousands of years, a line goes from being flat horizontal to nearly vertical. What are we seeing here? Here's how Ayn Rand described it. The creative energy, the abundance, the wealth, the rising standard of living for every level of the population were such that the 19th century looks like a science fiction utopia, like a building burst of sunlight in the drab progression of most of human history. If life on Earth is one standard of value, then the 19th century moved mankind forward more than all the other centuries combined. And it's in the 19th century that we see this starting to go nearly vertical of that line, this really picking up after being flat for so long. Why? What happened? What is going on here? Well, I'm suggesting that it's that human beings learned how to live, learned how to live as human beings. Morality is about how to live. And that's what we learned after not knowing it. At least it's, we learned an important part of how to live. What we learned is how to live together, especially how to live together at scale. And this brings us to the concept of a social system. What is a social system? Here's a quote from Rand about what she means by it. It's the set of moral, political, and economic principles embedded in the society's laws, institutions, and government, which determine the relationships and the terms of association among the men living in a given geographical area. It's how people interact, not just how they interact one-on-one, -on -one, but how the society is structured, how interactions are structured in the society. And on everybody's judgment, 
who thought about this, whatever different theory they might have about the 19th century, about the causes of human prosperity, and so forth, on almost everybody's judgment, there was a real change in the social system, in how people interacted in our institutions uh, leading up to the 19th century, taking hold during the, 19, during the 18th and 19th centuries, picking up and spreading to the world after it. There was a different social system, and it's generally called capitalism, and was called that by its critics. What are some of the differences? Not the deepest differences now, just some of the ways we can see the institutions are different. The governments are different. How people live and interact with one another are different. Huge projects were almost always done by governments. Done by governments for the prestige, usually, of a leader. How were they done starting in the 19th century? By corporations, stock companies. Some of these companies became governments. I mean, a company that sold tea somehow started to rule India. That's strange, and we should think about that and how that happened and whether it was good or bad. But things that started as commercial enterprises, people getting together, pooling their money, expecting return on investments, started having a major effect on the world. People were organizing around them. Who your parents were started to be less important than it was, less important than what you knew, what you could do, who you could get hired by, what relationships you could make with people, what things you had to trade, how you could help people make a profit, how you could make a profit yourself. The institutions came to be arranged around this. It used to be that society was shaped by certain class distinctions. In England, American students don't know this. You guys probably do. But like, is a doctor upper class? Of course, in America he is, but in England he's middle class. Upper class is like the king or some noble. Why? Well, because it's a holdover from an earlier system. We are so capitalist in America, in our institutions, in our way of thinking things, that it, what do you mean he has a good job? He makes a lot of money. That's top of the heap. But no, for millennia, Certainly in Aristotle's time, people lived a certain way. Some people were landed. They had estates and they controlled what happened on the estates, slaves or serfs or someone did the work and they owned this thing hereditarily and it would be passed on as a whole to their first son or whatever it would be. And, and there was this kind of rigid structure in a kind of feudal agrarian economy where everything was centered around estates, estates that would run the same way century after century, millennia after millennia, passed on from one oldest son to the next, sometimes with entailment and so forth. Uh, read Jane Austen novels about this. And to try to make sense of those novels or of so much of history, you have to think people lived in a very different way. They organized themselves in a very different way. Their lives weren't focused around jobs, around different particular careers people could have, different ways in which they might make it in the world. The family played a different role. Class played a very different role. Something really changed. It changed because of, or it was a cause of, this change in life expectancy. People have different views of quite how it happened. But there was a big change that was associated with this period where the line started going vertical. We changed from a feudal to a capitalist society. That's what people call this change. You can call it that, give that label to it. And then the question is, yeah, but what is capitalism? What is this change? What is this new system? What's the essence of it? If this change that we saw, first in England, in Holland, in the United States, then moving to some other places, 
or the transition from an older form of social organization to a newer one. And we're calling the newer one capitalist. And we're saying certain countries are capitalist and became capitalist at different times. What is it to be capitalist? What is it for a capitalist nation, economy, country, society to be capitalist? I'm putting it in that term because we're here in Athens. And what it is for something to be what it is is the complicated ancient Greek phrase that got adumbrated into our word, essence, totien inai, or however you modern Greeks pronounce it with all long ease. Um, what is the essence of capitalism? What is the essence of this new society? Here's Rand's view. Capitalism is a social system based on the recognition of individual rights, including property rights, in which all property is privately owned. I'll say a bit about the elements in this definition in a moment. But what I want to say now is, what is this definition doing? There's a phenomenon that happened historically, a way in which societies changed, call it capitalism, that was associated with this tremendous increase in wealth, in longevity. Call that change capitalism. Okay, what is that capitalism? What is the thing that we changed to? There are lots of facts about it. There are lots of other things that were happening at the same time, and we might wonder, are they causes of it, effects of it, just things that coincidentally were happening at the same time, complex interactions of it with other things? But what is the essence of the thing? What is the core of the thing? What is the headline? What is the center of gravity? What is the nature of this thing that we've changed to from what we've changed to it? There are different theories of what it is. Maybe it's, for example, European males subjugating the rest of the planet. Maybe that's the essence of capitalism. It's the hegemony of Europe over other people. It's exploitation. Capitalism is racism. That's a theory you hear sometimes. Not very plausible for reasons we'll discuss. But it's one theory. And it is true that this same period was a period of Europe having colonies, lots of places taking over, not often treating people poorly. It was a period where slavery increased, or at least a type of it that we came to see in the New World. Right? So it's not like there's not a there there. I don't think it's the essence. We can talk later about how it relates. What is it? Well, Rand's view, the essence of this change is that we've moved to a system where society is based on the recognition of individual rights, including property rights, in which all property is privately owned. That's the core, the essence, the deep thing to know about the change that happened when we went from what we called a feudal society to what we called a capitalist society. And we're going to understand the other things about that historical change, about this new way that we're living, that we weren't living before, in terms of this. This is what's going to be understood as the cause of the other phenomena, or as an interacting cause with other things. That's what we're claiming in giving this definition. There's this historical thing, a change from an old system to a new one, and this is the new system. Now, if that's right, it doesn't mean that this new principle was ever fully implemented. What it means is that society is come to, has come to be organized around individual rights in a way that it wasn't before, in a way where if you want to understand what's going on in 19th and 20th century societies 
that differentiates them at the deepest level from what happened earlier. It's that these societies, at least some of them, have come to be organized around the principle of individual rights. They may be imperfectly, incompletely, not yet fully, only in a half-assed way organized around this principle, but they are organized in a way that no societies were previously. If we think that this change is a change for the good, that might lead us to think we ought to organize things all the way around the principle of individual rights. We ought to go all in on this thing that has doubled our life expectancy. And we might think that capitalism is in fact an unknown ideal, something that's never been tried fully. But look at what it's done when it's been implemented partially. So capitalism is a society organized around respect for rights. A rights, a moral principle, defining and sanctioning man's freedom in a social context. And so what the concept of individual rights uh, represents is the social recognition of man's rational nature. It represents organizing a society around the needs of reason. How? Well, just by highlights. Notice we started by talking about what morality is. We've talked about what a social system is. We've talked about Rand's definition of capitalism in terms of individual rights. What she's doing is defining capitalism as the moral social system, the social system based on mankind's nature that enables us to live fully and properly, to get the most out of our nature. And that would explain why adopting it would lead to skyrocketing life expectancy and GDP. But what is this? So, in effect, capitalism is the moral social system, if this is the right definition of it, and it's the fact that it's the moral social system that explains the thing that we started off by noticing, that there was a change associated with a tremendous increase in human life expectancy and well-being. But what is the morality? What are these principles? What are rights? I've just given you some quotes but what I want to do is think about what they really mean, move into them to what is morality? What is the human way of living? What are these principles' rights that represent subordinating society to that principle, organizing society around that principle? And so what is a capitalist country like? And why does that lead to these massive gains in well-being and life expectancy? So back to morality. For Rand, there are two essentials to the human way of life. Two essentials to what morality tells us to do. Reason and production. Everything man needs has to be discovered by his mind, reason, and produced by his effort. And production is the application of reason to the problem of survival. Two of the core virtues, then, of Rand's moral theory are rationality and productiveness. What is rationality? It's valuing and using your reason. Your mind doesn't function automatically. You don't always use it or use it well. You have a choice about whether to turn it on or off when a question gets uncomfortable when something gets scary, when it seems like it's going to take a lot of work, do you think it through? Do you try to figure it out? 
or do you evade the effort? Do you accept that reality is what it is and that your mind is geared to knowing it but won't know it automatically? There's work you have to do to get to know it. Do you accept that work? Do you accept the responsibility of discerning what's true from what's false? Rationality is the virtue of doing that. And productiveness is the virtue of accepting the responsibility for bringing your values into reality. Accepting the responsibility of living. Not just wanting stuff or thinking stuff would be good for you if you had it or needing it, but recognizing that it's on you to do something, to bring about the things that you want and need. That human beings live by producing, by creating, not just by finding or seizing or expecting things to fall into our hands like manna from heaven. An important fact about productiveness, human beings produce the values that we consume in a way no other animal does. Every life is a process. Every type of organism lives by some process. And that process is a process of taking in, finding and taking in materials, then doing stuff with them to create more of itself, to keep itself going. But for every other organism, the process has some fixed set of inputs. And it looks around for them in its environment. And if it finds them, it lives. And if it doesn't, it dies. And if there's some other organism of the same species who also wants them, it's got to outcompete it or fight for them. Human beings don't do that. There's nothing in our environment that we just need, and if we get it, we live, and if not, we die. There's not a fixed static input to the process of human life. We create what we need out of raw materials. And if we find that those raw materials are in short supply, we find other raw materials or create the raw materials, deciding they weren't raw after all. There's something deeper than them. If we want berries or oranges, since we're in Greece and they're growing all over the place, we don't just find them and pick them off trees. We realize we can grow the trees if there aren't enough. And if there's not enough land we can grow those kinds of trees on, we make more land by converting the land. And if the land gets infertile, we make fertilizer and so forth. There's no fixed set of inputs. Human beings produce what we need. Each human being, because he has reason, is a producer, capable of producing things. This is a tremendous and underappreciated fact about our species. It means that human beings are not fundamentally in competition with one another. That's so different than the other species out there. Of course, there are all kinds of competitions between people, competitions of fact of life, but it's not fundamental fact of life. It's not the case that if other people get what they need to survive and prosper, that means it's likely you'll get less because there's only a fixed supply of it. There's no input to our lives of which there's a fixed supply. We're able to make more of it. And other people doing well in life means they're making more of the stuff that can be good for you. Human beings are fundamentally cooperative in a way no other animal species is. Even animal species that are social and live cooperatively are always in competition for the resources with the other hive or the other tribe or the other group of animals. Not so human beings, not if we do it right. We can be such that every human being on the planet doing better improves the life of everyone else. 
Because how we do better is by making stuff, making the kind of stuff that human beings need and can use. And we could always find more ways of doing that because we are a rational animal. A rational animal that can produce. But we have to learn to live that way. Like the birds in our example had to learn to fly. And not only do we have to learn to live that way individually, learn how to be productive, we have to learn how to interact with one another in light of the fact that we're like this. How can we interact? Well, the alternatives for interacting with people, I think we can capture by two alternatives. You can interact with someone by trade or by sacrifice. When you're interacting with someone by trade, you're expecting both people to get something that makes them better off. When you're interacting by sacrifice, someone's giving up, someone's losing out on the deal. But because human beings are reasoners and producers, our interactions don't have to involve sacrifice, and they shouldn't. Human interactions can be trades, and so should be trades. Human beings are productive animals, and so we're trading animals. Animals that are able to cooperate, animals that are able to engage in win-win relationships. Essential to something really being a trade, though, really being cooperation, not just me making you do something and saying, well, really, you'll be better for it, is that the relationships operate by persuasion as opposed to by force. If I force you to do something, even if you get something out of it, you're not the one who's the judge that you got something out of it, that it was worth doing. You're not in a position where you can live your life by your own reasoning and decide what things to pursue and how to pursue them. Because I force you into this relationship, even if I think it's better for you, even if I think you'll thank me for it. It's not a trade. It's not you being able to live by your reason. It's me forcing you. Even if I say it's also for your own good. The alternative to force is dealing with people by persuasion. Thinking of people as each in the world to lead their own lives for their own sakes, by their own judgment, and being willing to interact with them only when they want to interact with you. Giving them reasons that they can judge by their own mind to decide to cooperate with you or to go their own way. And persuasion is the human way to deal with one another. The way to deal with one another that's consistent with our nature, that we need in order to lead the kinds of lives that we're geared to lead, that we're capable of leading, that will enable us to flourish. But we have to learn to do it, learn to persuade one another. And we have to learn to organize a society around persuasion and trade rather than around force. So long as men desire to live together, says Rand, no man may initiate the use of physical force against others. This is supposed to be a basic agreement that is behind the society and makes it a human society. The kind of society which is an unalloyed benefit for the people in it is a society in which people live by the principle that no man may initiate the use of force against one another. That if we're going to interact, the interaction must be voluntary. That if I want something from you, the way to get it is persuasion. 
How do you organize a society around that principle? That's a moral principle that could come up between me and you. I could try forcing you and realize how wrong and impractical that is and realize, no, I'm better off interacting with you by trade. It's the right way to interact with you. It's the way I'd want to be interacted with. It's the way I need to be interacted with to function. You must be the same as me in that respect. And everything I can get from you comes from this fact that you're a reasoner. And it's the fact that I'm a reasoner that makes me need to interact, to be persuaded to do something, not forced to do it. Everything I can get from you comes from that same fact about you. So you need to be interacted that way. To try to deal with you by force rather than persuasion would be as foolish and self-destructive as to try to deal with nature by persuasion. I can realize that in a one-on-one -on -one interaction. I could realize that as a principle of dealing with people. But there's a further thing to learn how to organize a society to be a society of traders. And the key principle for doing that, for making, for not just being moral in your own life, not just being moral in your interactions with individual other people, but for having a society be moral, the key principle is the principle of individual rights. Rights Rand defines as moral principles defining and sanctioning a man's freedom of action in a social context. What does that mean? Well, they're moral principles, okay? They arise in a social context, in other words, when people are living among one another and trying to live together. And they're defining and sanctioning the freedom of action. So in other words, they're saying, what scope is your scope to act in? Such that if I go into that area, if I interfere with that scope, I am imposing on your life. I'm exerting force on you. And if I stay out of that scope and let you act in that sphere, I'm leaving you free. What is your sphere of freedom? What is your life? So that if I, what actions are, and, and range of actions are part of your life such that my interfering in that range of actions would be initiating force on you? such that I need your consent to come in and do certain things. What is this fear? It needs to be defined because it's not obvious. In the broad scope, we could define it in a few words. But then like, if I build a house on this corner, if I play guitar late at night, like there's a lot of details that need to be defined in a legal code. But let's just do the broad scope. You have the right to life. A life is a process of action, a process of self-sustenance, a process of reasoning and production. And you have the right to take those actions, the actions you need to support your life, without other people interfering with them. That means a right to liberty, a right to a broad sphere in which you're able to act by your own judgment, and a right to the pursuit of happiness, a right to direct all of those activities towards a chosen purpose that will be the meaning you give to your life. And it also crucially requires a right to property. Why? Because human beings live by producing. Because there are things that we need in order to survive, from simple things like food and shelter to complex things like the knowledge that fills up libraries and complex technologies that enable us to get the food and shelter, airplanes, conference venues, etc. All of these things we need. And we have to create. All the things human beings need need to be discovered by human thought and then produced by human action. The right to property is the right to keep and trade the values that you've produced. 
a lot of difficult and detailed questions about how exactly to implement that, how to define property rights in this or that sphere. But in essence, that's what the right to property is. Human beings think and produce. It's something that they do by choice, that they do as individuals in cooperation with one another. And to function as individuals cooperating with one another and going their separate ways when they can't be persuaded to cooperate, they need to have to themselves, have control themselves over the things that they've created, thus the right to property. Capitalism, then, is a social system based on the, in, in the recognition of individual rights, including the right to property. in which all property is privately owned, but I'm not going to focus on that clause. So capitalism is the social system based on individual rights, and she highlights property rights, because some people who claim to talk about human rights ignore that one. That's what we got starting in the late 18th century, really took hold in the 19th, swept the world. We didn't get it perfectly. Lots of exceptions to it. Lots of ways in which it was, you know, imperfectly or only partially realized. But that's the new thing. The organizing society around the idea that individuals are individuals, free to live for themselves, able to and free to create the kinds of values that human life requires in new ways, in cooperation with one another when they choose to, but not forced to act together, and free to keep the things they've created and trade them. That's the colossal change. That's what we learned. That's what set a graph that had been horizontal for millennia vertical. That's what capitalism is. What does such a society look like? In a capitalist society, no man or group may initiate the use of physical force against others. The only function of the government is the task of protecting man's rights, the task of protecting him from physical force. The government acts as the agent of man's rights of self-defense and may use force only in retaliation and only against those who initiate its use. The government is the means of placing the retaliatory use of force under objective control. Has there ever been such a society? Well, yes and no. Never fully. No society's quite lived up to this. But this captures, in essence, what the difference between the earlier feudal society is and the society we've sort of partially, incompletely moved into. And the claim is that it's this difference, it's the approximating to this, where we weren't at all before, that caused that tremendous increase in standard of living and length of life. How does this relate to some of the other factors involved in that period? Well, I mentioned, and I feel it's important to mention and talk about capitalism that talks about its history, the issues of imperialism, conquest, slavery, which are facts about the 19th century, and which some people 
think of as essential to the history of capitalism. But conquest and empires and forcing other people and enslaving them go back all of those 200,000 years as far as we can tell. Maybe they don't count as empires far back then, but people forcing and subjugating one another is as old, well, it's older than history. Probably hundreds of thousands of years older than history. It's not something that's new with capitalism. It's not something that's new with the 19th century or the 18th century. What is new is that some people got a lot better at it. You had people subjugating others, enslaving others. You didn't have people able to transport whole populations across an ocean, for example. Under force. What I think we see in the 18th and 19th century is people who are learning to live with one another as traitors, but haven't yet learned to live with other people as traitors. What you see is people who are still acting as enslavers too often, as aggressors too often, as brutes too often, with regard to people who are different from them or from other places, who don't know and haven't figured out how to live with them voluntarily, though they have figured out how to live in a voluntary way with the people in their home countries, to a much greater extent anyway than anybody had before, with the result that when they mistreat people from other societies, they're able to do it on a grander scale. They're able to be more effective in their mistreatment. But that mistreatment, that enslaving, is not part of the cause of life expectancy going up. It's not part of the cause of the increase in GDP and standard of living. It's not part of the cause, even though many of the goods that were produced in new capitalist arrangements were produced as all goods had always been with a lot of slave labor. It's not part of the reason why we were so much better at producing things now. It's part of what was holding us back. The change was a change from all working together of any scale being done by force to large-scale workings together being done by voluntary agreement, by contract, with respect of the individuality and the rights in the minds of everybody involved, except not everybody, not a lot of people but so many more than before. And as we learned in those areas where we have learned to do away with the remaining aspects of a pre-capitalist, pre-human way of interacting with one another, we've gotten wealthier and wealthier. It's no accident that the North won the Civil War in America, that the productive, industrious, growing thoughtful North won a war over a stagnant society in which by whipping people, they figured out how to be super efficient at producing one good that was needed at one period of time and had no ability to pivot, figure out how to do anything else other than that because they reduced half of the people living there to a non-human way of life. No surprise that the human society was able to figure out how to do better. 
Sadly, the change didn't take all the way. There are so many ways in which we've still failed to live up to this type of society and some ways in which we've backslid. But the broader picture is that as a species, we're learning to live. We live by reason. We have to discover how to live. We have to work out how to do our equivalent of flying. We could hardly talk for most of our history. And then we learn to. We learn to write. We learn to reason. And then we're just at the cusp in human history of learning how to live together as human beings. It's accomplished so much already. And there's so much more that we can accomplish by embracing it, by demanding no less than it, by recognizing that capitalism is the unknown ideal, is the only moral social system, and is the human way of life. I'll take questions now. I'm told that the question should be short, a, a, a sentiment that I strongly endorse, and also um, that you should speak right into the microphone because I guess it's hard to hear. Thank you very much for your talk, Dr. Salmieri. My question is, Rand depicted this image of capitalism as a moral system that has never been implemented. However, most of us here have no idea or do not concretely know what a path to transition from the political systems that we have today, where individual rights are not respected, would look like to transition into a political system that does respect them. So what is your view about how that transition would look like? So I think it's important to hold two sides of the same point um, to think about this. In the one sense, it's an untried, unknown ideal in that we've never fully had it. On the other hand, it's a concept formed from observation of something that actually existed, a real difference between the America that was founded in 1776, how, um, how Britain became in the years preceding and after that, what was going on in Amsterdam, like the ways different countries were that was different from how they were before. There's a real phenomenon that really happened that countries started at first not on purpose but getting reorganized around individual rights as happened in England and I think in Holland to some extent and then purposefully being organized around them as happened with the United States and then that took off in the world. That's a real thing that really happened but didn't happen completely. And then the question is, okay, so what do we do to get it to happen completely? And I think two things. One, we grasp that this is what happened incompletely in the cases where it did and recognize what good came of it and argue for it on those grounds. And two, we think about by what steps that transition happened in the places where it did happen. And some of how it happened was by people explicitly arguing on moral principle. Um, think about the American founders, think about the abolitionists 
uh, abolishing slavery, think about people like John Locke. But also, there are times when parts of the change happened by gradual, gradually, by slow neglect, by people emulating their neighbors and so forth. And I think we have to notice and embrace both of those things and then think about, well, what countries, is there a way to get there? You know, we need the moral argument where we can have it, but also notice the kinds of historical trends that tend to be favorable towards liberalizing. And then think about how they apply in each of our countries. And how that's a big question about foreign policy. I don't know the answer to, but that's, I think, the essence of what we need. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah. The rational or conceptual mode of existence as man's natural mode of existence. Mm -hmm. But what if it's more like it's an invented mode? What if it's more like, imagine there's birds and then they figure out how to use their wings to manipulate objects. That's not how the wings evolved. They didn't evolve for that purpose, but maybe they figured out how to use it. And could it be that it's, it's the rational if mode they, of existence? Yeah. If they were the kind of creatures that could do that... Then they'd be rational. Then they'd be rational creatures, and their wings wouldn't be their main means of survival. Their reason would be. Um, we, the fact that we're... Think about those early people... Yeah. ...who were going around hardly thinking but thinking somewhat and living that way, who figured out, for example, how to break out the marrow out of bones using stone tools, and therefore that they could wait until after the lion ate the thing and the other thing scavenged the corpus, and they could just break open the bones and get some more nutrition. That's the one thought they had maybe for a millennia, but they thought that and they figured that out and they figured out how to make that tool, right? That's what evolution selected for, that ability. But what is that ability? That's an ability that a little bit gets you enough, using it a little bit, gets you enough to eke on for, you know, 200 millennia or so, or 150 millennia or so, but that that's just the start, the intro level of using it. What evolved was reason, and a little bit of reason goes a decent way when you're competing against hyenas, um, but what we're now learning to do is use it the rest of the way. Thank you. Hi. I should advertise, by the way, that I, I talked a bit about slavery. I didn't really talk about imperialism, and there's one interesting point to make about it that I'd be pleased to if someone asked me how it relates to capitalism. Ron? Not me. There is an implied statement that capitalism is a social system in which individuals are free to interact or trade with each other voluntarily without coercion. And given the misconception we talk outside in the room with people, do you feel that that's an important point to stress as we clarify the, the, the concept of capitalism? That is that it's based on rights and on freedom? No, that it's a system in which we are free to interact, trade with each other. Yes, voluntarily. I think that's that important point. to stress. Yeah. And I tried to stress it. <laughs> I was waiting for, for the explicit. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry, this side. Yes, could you talk about imperialism? Oh, thanks. <laughs> well, the one point I wanted to make is that capitalism is a system in which there's a government that plays a certain role, the role of protecting individual rights. And if you think of the, what was going on in the age of exploration and, and colonization and so forth, one, the governments weren't doing that. 
They weren't protecting the rights of the other people that were encountered. Two, there were no local governments that were capable of doing that. I mean, in Africa, for example, some African tribes were capturing other Africans and enslaving them and selling them to the Europeans. Doesn't mean it was okay for the Europeans to buy them, but it's a notable fact that there wasn't any kind of rights respecting government in Africa that could have prevented that. But two, a lot of what happened uh, and the worst things that happened under colonialism happened because of anarchy. So you had, for example, the British East India Company with a, a perfectly reasonable, honorable motive at first. They wanted to trade and exchange tea and so forth, and they get into India, and there were these warring tribes, and they get involved in the tribal warfare. And basically, there was a period of anarchy in India in which this company got really involved in the fighting and ended up somehow becoming the government of like a whole subcontinent, even though it was a, there was a, a confusion between the economic and the political. You had a kind of anarcho-capitalist state where the, um, just to kind of, uh, forget that dig because I don't want to explain the whole of it. But part of what capitalism needs is a government. Part of the social institution that is capitalism is a government that's right-respecting. And in particular, it means a separation of economic activity from the activity of protecting rights. That's something that was not understood uh, in that period. And if we do understand it now, we can see that a lot of what went wrong was either governments not functioning to protect rights or there was no government in a place and a company tried to set up shop there and they ended up acting as a government and became very oppressive as a government. And one of the things that I think needs to be learned for the future is that there's a crucial role of government in capitalism. Not the role of being partners with the industry or any of the things politicians say, but simply the role of setting itself up to protect rights and to give rule of law. And there's a lot of difficult foreign policy questions I don't know the answers to about what to do if you're a country that's more or less capitalist and you're you've got companies dealing with a country that isn't and how they should set things up. And lots of questions I think are really deep historical and political questions about how to handle that situation right. But here's one way not to handle it. Don't have one of your companies suddenly become the government of India or any place else. And that's what happened. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the history of India. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.